know, as we move forward to recovery, I think that community colleges, apprenticeships, and online learning, all of those three are going to play a huge role as we get Americans back on their feet, back to work, as the jobs come back online, hopefully, in the, the coming year. This is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Jacob Bray. On this episode of In the Know, ACCT's Director of Strategic Communications, David Connor, talks with Andrew Hansen, Director of Research for Strata Education Network's Consumer Insights team. David and Andrew discuss education consumer insights and what they mean for higher education and workforce training. This is part one of a two-part episode. This interview was recorded via Zoom, so please excuse any dips or breaks in audio quality. So to, to begin, uh, you and your colleague, Carol D'Amico at Strata, presented during our recent 2020 ACCT Leadership Congress about your public viewpoint survey. So um, just to catch everybody up in case anybody missed those presentations, and also just um, to get a little bit better acquainted with you, could you tell us a little bit about your background and then describe the, the work, the survey for our listeners? Sure. So I am uh, the director of research at uh, the Strata uh, Center for Education Consumer Insights. We're a, Strata is a national social impact organization. We're based in, in Indianapolis and we're primarily focused on finding ways to forge uh, clearer and more purposeful pathways between education and work. Um, and, you know, prior to the pandemic hitting, uh, we had built the nation's largest education consumer database, uh, which you know now we're, we're up to 400, nearly 400,000 Americans. Uh, we've collected their perspectives on education work. So from 2016 to 2019, we were uh, surveying through a partnership with Gallup, uh, 350 um, US adults every, every day over the phone, 15 to 20 minute uh, phone interview. Um, and so that's what we were doing. My own uh, personal uh, background, you know, how I sort of came into this space is, uh, you know, I I actually was, I started my um, post high school education at a community college. I was, I was at, uh, I enrolled at Madison Area Technical College in Wisconsin. I was one of a handful of students who uh, were in, enrolled in their guaranteed transfer program. It was called UW Connections. Uh, and, you know, I, I was a, one, a student who who grew up with a lot of cards kind of stacked against me, a uh, single mom, very poor, uh, first in my family to go to college, uh, uh, somebody who worked full-time throughout college. And so I had just had a tremendous experience at Madison College, and it really was a gateway to opportunities, a place where uh, I was able to experiment, to learn, and to grow. And that is one of a handful of experiences that eventually led me to work in the education space. I started out as a teacher of middle school students at, uh, in the St. Louis public schools and, and eventually uh, found my calling uh, working in uh, research, re- research and, and advocacy. So to, your, to you and to, to your listeners, I, I hope you, you know, I'm just extremely grateful for the work that you're doing uh, to, to extend the transformational power of education uh, to, to more and more of us. Um, and so just to back to get back to what we've done at Strata, when the pandemic first hit in March, you know, like so many Americans, we were, you know, watching as, as businesses were, were being shuttered across the country, tens of millions of people put out of work, 
many people whose health was at risk, including members of our own families or friends. Uh, and so we basically put a pause on everything we were doing and looked in the mirror and said, you know, what can we do to help? And, you know, obviously there's, there's a lot that we can't do that's very important, but from our position, we decided that one of the most useful things that we could do is, is to provide real-time information to our audience of, of educators and policymakers, uh, mostly speaking. So we developed the public viewpoint, which is this weekly tracking poll. Uh, and we started out with just a handful of questions that we felt fairly confident that our audience would be interested in and brought, uh, brought folks together every few weeks through our public viewpoint webinar series to discuss the results with, with leaders and experts from the field, including, um, including a number of community college presidents. And so um, what's been, what's, what was sort of surprising from when we started the work uh, was, um, you know, just how, how much our audience actually has contributed to the work. They've, they, through their contributions, they've inspired, a, you know, a lot of the topics and questions that we've been asking throughout the year. Uh, so that's, a, we've been pulling a thousand Americans and we now just through that work from now throughout the year, uh, pulled 35,000 Americans to try to, to better understand um, the challenges that they're navigating with respect to education and work. What are their plans? What are their perspectives? What are their preferences? Um, and so it's been a really unique uh, process and experience um, uh, throughout the year. Thanks. Uh, that's that, that. I think that information is really relevant and including your personal details. So thank you for sharing that because um, I think you know some people might not not have assumed that you know an education researcher um, working at this level might have had that that background that you do, which is I think really relevant. Um, I think it really informs the research that you're doing and. So it's, it's just good to know that about you. Uh, I, I have a question about the kind of what you call the research that you do, um, specifically education consumer insights. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about just to begin with, with that, that, um, that language. Yeah, because sure. I think a lot of people in public higher education in particular might not really think about their students as consumers. So can you explain why it might be important to see students that way? Well, there's uh, a long conversation that informs it. I would say the primary consideration is from our perspective, we take a broad look um, at learning of all types. So when we think about people who are learning, uh, who are, you know, uh, going through an education and, or training experience. We are, a large part of our work is focused on students, but we're also thinking about uh, people going through non-traditional kinds of learning experiences, well, that's, well, whether that's work-based learning like apprenticeships or employer training or going through a boot camp or, or um, informally learning on the job even. Um, so that's one aspect of it is to be inclusive of, you know, all sorts of learning experiences as we think about trying to, um, to promote uh, learning experiences that are going to help people thrive on the job. The consumer uh, piece of it specifically is a bit more um, informed by our belief 
that thinking about learners through a consumer lens can shed light on ways to serve them more effectively um, in a way that thinking about them as students may, may not uh, exactly. And uh, the idea there is that we are ultimately serve here to, to serve students, to put them at the center and to uh, meet them where they are um, in terms of what their needs are, what their wants are, you know, why they've decided to, to hire uh, education and training uh, for what purpose. And, um, and so that's, that's the concept. I will say it is, um, it is not a word <laughs> that, uh, you know, that we've, that has, has been embraced necessarily. Uh, but I think it is one that is, is unique to, to our work. And, you know, we sort of think that there is uh, a lot of opportunity for more education and training providers to do, to, to embed consumer research into what they're doing and that that can help improve uh, the practices and help them make, um, make progress on their goals. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the reason that I asked that question actually goes back years. Um, I work with a membership group of our association called the Corporate Council. <clears throat> and years ago, somebody said to us, or actually said to the council itself, um, you know, that she really, really loves the community college sector. In fact, she, you know, it's, it's her favorite sector to work with. These are for-profit companies that provide different services to colleges. And she said, but, you know, I'm really worried that online universities are serving students. They invest in customer service of all things. Um, and that is the one place, she said, where I fear community colleges, um, you know, not thinking of serving a customer or consumer might really kind of lose ground. And the, so I brought that into this conversation because we're going to talk about some recent findings that you found. Um, and re recent at this point means the past uh, 12 months or nine months at least has been the pandemic and a lot of remote education. So um, I just, I felt like it was kind of relevant to that. Um, so one of your findings was that 35% of Americans believe that they would need further education or training if they lost their jobs today. But you also uncovered a lot of um, perhaps counterintuitive nuance within this finding. Can you talk about what confidence and self-doubt have to do with uh, this finding? Sure, so it's, it's been really interesting, you know, um, thinking about trying to get an, an early, early insight into and wrapping our arms around, you know, the extent to which education has been disrupted by the pandemic. Uh, you know, we saw a quarter of working, working age Americans say they had to change their plans, their education plans as a result of the pandemic. 9% of those were um, folks who were delaying their enrollment, 5% changing providers and uh, so on. So, one of the questions that we've been asking since the beginning of the public viewpoint data is, um, you know, how interested uh, people are in pursuing an education or training program. So we have seen that consistently around 20 to 25% of Americans say they plan to enroll in an education or training program within the next six months. And so that's fairly high, right? Um, so obviously, but obviously enrollment is, is down. You know, we've got the fall enrollment data 
and the pandemic is you know the likely culprit uh, it's created this 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 sort of cloud of uncertainty and anxiety that's i think you know paralyzing uh, many people you know essentially just hit the pause button and you know maybe just wait for that storm to pass um but we have we have seen this it's almost a paradox of people who you know we've surveyed them we've asked them about how they value education in a number of different ways and essentially what we see is that they they value education in the abstract if you know if you ask them about it the value of education generally they say you know it's valuable it promotes social and economic mobility you know they want their kids to go to college and so on um and in fact uh the folks who have said their work is disrupted by the pandemic are about twice as likely uh, to say that they're interested in education and training. Uh, but when it comes to, you know, actually pulling the trigger, something tends to get in the way. And we see beliefs, you know, people who are saying it's not worth it, or, you know, I can't find an option that meets my needs, or I don't have the time. Um, and so among those folks, we've, we wanted to unpack, well, what's, what's going on there? Uh, what's driving these, these perceptions? And a lot of them had, uh, as you mentioned, a self-doubt. Uh, it was, there is a lack of confidence in their ability to be successful in an academic environment. Oftentimes it's associated with a prior negative experience. Um, and you know, they're essentially saying, so education for, for the education for everybody else, for my kids, for whomever, but not, not for me, you know, they can't find an option that works for them. And it's ultimately because I think uh, they don't necessarily want the training, right? They want the, the job, the promotion or the raise in order to get that training, there has to be something extra pushing, pushing or pulling them to, to override that sort of default setting that they're on, you might think that the pandemic would uh, give them that push. And that's what a lot of us were predicting at the onset is that this is going to lead to increased, increased enrollments, especially at community colleges, but that didn't happen, uh, right? And so I think the folks who said, well, no, there's this major supply constraint that's gonna get it in the way of the people who would other, given the economic context, the people who would be pursuing further education and training. So what one of the um, particulars of this <clears throat> is you found was that black and Latino Americans intend to enroll in education and training programs at higher rates than white Americans do. How does that translate into actual enrollments? I think that it's, it's a, it's in it's a case by case basis. The interests can give you it's an attitudinal information, so it can give you an early signal of what may or may not be coming. Especially if you think about it in terms of trends, if it's going up or down, you know that could give you a leading indicator of where enrollments uh, might go. Um, but uh, the fact that uh, Black Americans and Latino Latinos are sort of more likely to enroll, I mean, I think it communicates on this, on the, on discussions of racial disparities, um, you know, especially the disproportionate 
impact that the pandemic has had on on Black and Latino communities, and that's both work and education. You know, they're more, more likely to have had their work negatively affected as well as uh, had to change or cancel their education plans. Uh, but it is ultimately a good sign that I think, you know, we've heard from um, experts in the field uh, that the the idea that that Black Americans and Latinos are are bought into the power of education to, to lift people up, to help them help them flourish and thrive, that is not uh, a barrier that we need to necessarily uh, worry about. But I I do think that um, it it does it it speaks to it makes a few things clear the disparities that is you know we need to continue the work of creating diverse equitable and uh and inclusive communities in education and training and um we 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 sort of have um a a pop population of black americans and latinos in particular who are ready and willing um, to, to bite and to, to, to participate in education. Uh, but we need to tell their stories uh, to ground us in the work that they do and inspire others like them to give them the confidence. You know, a lot of times they are, they're the ones who have uh, self-doubt or, you know, sort of feel less comfortable or less included uh, to give them confidence that they're not alone, you know, and that, that they can reach their goals through education. Yeah, actually, we just uh, recorded a podcast with our current board chair, <clears throat> David Mathis, who has been a trustee for 40 years, um, over 40 years, actually. And he, he talks a lot about that. Uh, his, his focus for this year for this association really is diversity, equity, and inclusion, and um, the importance of representation, of telling those stories and seeing people in leadership positions um, who would then motivate, you know, other people to get into it. Uh, and it David, like one, absolutely. One thing, one of the great privileges of the public viewpoint work is we've been able to feature, uh, so many, uh, different learners on our panels and hear from them, you know, as part of this consumer research to tell their stories, uh, to be able to listen to them. And, you know, like I said, we've had a lot of students of students of color, first generation students, and those from low, low, low income backgrounds to learn directly from them. Um, and so that's, it's just been a tremendous uh, privilege uh, to, and they've shed so much light on this kind of uh, questions that we've ought to be asking through our, through our survey work as well. And so it's something that we need to be doing more of. And it's also been, uh, you know, wonderful to hear the, the response from the field. Every time we feature a learner, on our panels, you know, that we consistently hear that that is, you know, people's favorite part. I think that that we just need more of that uh, in education uh, conversations generally. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think um, people underestimate the importance of storytelling and stories in general. Um, uh, you know, in a recent presentation, I think one of your colleagues was describing what what they were calling the opportunity gap. And that seems like a real bridge within that gap. Um, I, I have a question that I'm gonna ask you to maybe speculate a little bit, but maybe you have um, some actual empirical insights into this as well. 
Um, so your, your survey says that when students have the support to connect to uh, their education to their careers, which you mentioned earlier, um, they're more likely to say their education was worth the cost. And we've seen um, in other studies that you've done with Gallup and even um, New America's varying degrees surveys, uh, you know, this, this seems to stand up in multiple surveys that mm -hmm. um, as long as students believe that their, their studies are related to their jobs and that they will pay off um, professionally, then they value that education. And community colleges in these surveys tend to, um, to rate more highly with a majority of students than their four-year counterparts. So given everything that has happened over the past year, we know enrollments at community colleges um, have dropped or they dropped this fall even more sharply than at four-year universities. And so I'm wondering if you have any insights into the disconnect there, if, they, if students overall or Americans overall assign a greater value to the, um, the, the payoff, so to speak, or the direct relationship between their educations and work, but enrollments are down at a greater rate. Does it come down to marketing, to delivery of education, or do you have any idea or no idea at this point? I think with respect to community colleges, what we know about um, enrollments there is that the, the connections uh, are a bit um, sort of looser, more fragile. You, you just have a little bit more of students who are enrolling or dropping out at any given, any given point. So when a disruption comes along, those institutions are more affected than, uh, say, a four-year four-year colleges or universities where uh, there's a more of a stronger commitment of much a traditional younger uh, college going student body uh, and so when a disruption comes along they're far less likely to to leave I do think that suggests that uh, once it becomes safe uh, to resume in-person education, which may be deterring many people, that you'll see community college enrollment come back, especially if um, the predictions about the economy, uh, the length and depth of the recession continue for the foreseeable future. I think that we'll sort of resume the, the prior trends in recessions, which is a big spike in community college enrollment. So you see, you'll see a lot of folks uh, coming back, but you're, you're absolutely right David, that we one of the things we did in surveying these 35,000 Americans, that included a survey of 4,000 undergraduate students. And we asked them exactly what you, what you mentioned, which is how, how good is your institution at connecting to a career? How relevant is your program to a career? And, you know, you're learning things that are applied and um, are getting, you know, the kind of career connections that you're looking for and in that data this is from the fall semester community colleges come out looking much much better than the four-year colleges and so i think that is an aspect of this uh, value conversation my own experience having gone to uh community colleges that on that teaching and learning piece on the relevant learning things that are relevant um, you know, that's a huge advantage, I think, for community colleges that they can really lean into. Yeah, I mean, I had a similar experience. <clears throat> I went to Northern Virginia Community College and 
and I'm glad I did. <laughs> but you know that it, it's interesting because I never really realized uh, what it had done for me until I interviewed for this job, which was at this point almost 13 years ago. Um, I just took it for granted, and I think a lot of people do that. Yeah, the what's informs my experience. Um, in kind of understanding what's unique and valuable about community colleges was by uh, pursuing uh, many diverse educated learning experiences over the course of my career. So I transferred from community colleges to a flagship state university, the University of Wisconsin. I've been in a sort of non-selective, did graduate school at a non-selective university. I've been through boot camps. I've done professional and continuing education. I've done, I, you know, I was at a kind of a private, uh, a private four-year. I pursued some graduate work there as well. And so as you accumulate these experiences, you understand what's special about uh, community colleges. And I think it is exactly, I think it's a focus on teaching and learning and, and pedagogy that really helps them stand out. Um, you know, there are other things that other institutions have uh, a leg up in terms of um, <laughs> their ability to sort of select a talent, especially. Uh, but I think there are a lot of things that community colleges uniquely do really well. Yeah, actually, it's, it's interesting um, that you were talking about your educational um, track, I guess, because I'm thinking now, I think you recently mentioned on a webinar that you are a millennial, is that right? That's correct, I'd count myself as a millennial by virtually any definition, and there are many. Okay, <laughs> well, I am Generation X, and um, it, it's, it's really interesting to me, given, um, given the way that I guess I was brought up to think about education, that you know, I, I definitely have been oriented toward degree-seeking programs, and have not really contemplated um, in a professional setting, you know, certificates or other sorts of, of education formally. Um, so I guess with that in mind, um, you know, you, you have gathered insights into um, interest in non-degree and skills training options. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the insights related to that, but also um, whether non-degree education and training translate as well to employment as degrees do. And just to clarify, and I can, I can re-ask these questions if I'm throwing too much at you, but to clarify, I, one of the reasons I'm asking this is because a lot of trustees in particular and um, college presidents for that matter are older. And so I wonder, um, although they're in this world, I wonder if their context for desired educational uh, models are, may not align with those of younger people who are seeking education right now. Well, it's interesting that you say that. I think, yeah, I think there are people who have already earned a degree, uh, who are, are in good jobs or sort of very privileged positions of power who no longer need, they have the opportunity to sort of learn on the job. And so they no longer need to seek uh, formal education of any kind uh, to, to advance their career, or, you know, take, take that next step, get a good job, so on and so forth. Because in fact, what you see 
um, non-degree skills training options, and I'll come back to what our survey finds in a minute, but uh, that the, mo the interest in those options is among folks who are midway through their life, midway through their career. They have all these other responsibilities. They don't have the time that it would take uh, to pursue a degree program. So there's a few things to say. One is that in the labor market now, uh, the bachelor's degree is absolutely the gold standard it, it, to the extent that employers have degree requirements. They are bachelor's degrees, in some cases, graduate degrees. Um, and so that is and continues to be uh, the default, I think, uh, standard for education and training. Um, but at the same time, um, one of the more striking things that we've found is what you alluded to, which is that the majority of Americans prefer some sort of non-degree or skills training options. Essentially, you know, these could be individual courses or sets of courses for professional, personal or professional development. And they don't appear to care that much about the specific credential that it leads to as long as it's relevant, as long as it's streamlined and applied and, and gets them the job. So when you're dealing with old, the older adults in particular, you know, they've got a specific goal in mind. Some cases that requires a degree, but not all cases. Whatever's going to help them get to that goal, most often it's, it's a good job, it's a promotion or a raise um, after I finish. As long as it gets them there, then that's fine. Uh, so it's, you know, it's interesting. I think that um, one of the reasons that education <laughs> plays such a central role in America is it's because it's aligned with our sort of uh, dual, dual values of equal opportunity and personal responsibility. But uh, credentialism is kind of at odds with that ethos, meaning Americans, are, they really don't like formal hierarchies. They like to believe that um, it's a sort of a fair playing field uh, more generally. So I do actually think that the, where we're headed is kind of a skill-based world. I think you'll see a decline in the uh, in emphasis on education credentials, especially with more and more industries coming to develop their own credentials and big name brands like Google, for example, Google putting out certificates, you'll see education and training providers lean more and more into to helping, helping their students acquire those credentials because they're more connected to, to jobs. Um, and so I think, and I think there's huge benefits for that, for that, uh, moving toward that kind of system. Obviously, it sort of inherently promotes um, greater alignment between learning and work. It's easier for uh, educators to adapt to, you know, evolving skill demands. It allows for personalized lifelong learning, which is where everybody wants us to, to go toward. And then a really important point that uh, opportunity to work, many others brought up, is that it leads to more equity. Because when you require college degrees for a good job, if you have to have a college degree, that ultimately serves as a barrier to opportunity, especially for Black Americans and Latinos. And so we've seen in our conversations with employers that many employers are saying, well, if I require a generic bachelor's degree for every job, then I'm not going to be able to hire a diverse workforce. 
and that's a challenge. Thank you for listening to part one of our conversation with Andrew. Make sure to subscribe so you're notified when we release part two on Thursday. If you're interested in learning more about Andrew's work, we'll put a link in the description for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.